welcome to another episode of First Up. Today's episode is a follow-up to episode three as we near closer to the release of the free application for federal student aid or the FAFSA. This time around, we are joined by Thomas Semanic to discuss new processes and terminology on the 2024 to 2025 FAFSA. Hi, everyone. I'm Brian White, joined as always by Jasmine Jordan Gonzalez. Hey, y'all. And today we are joined by Thomas Semanic. We did a first episode based on just the FAFSA and the upcoming FAFSA and things that will be changed on that. So this is a part two of that episode. So yeah, Tommy, do you mind introducing yourself? Hey guys, thanks for having me. My name is Tommy Semanic. Uh, I'm a professional development specialist with the Illinois Student Assistance Commission. I am a first-gen student uh, from the southwest side of Chicago, and I'm just glad to be here today. We're glad to have you. And like I said before, last time while we had Dada on the episode, we talked about some of the upcoming changes to the FAFSA and how completing the FAFSA was with her. So for you, we want to start there. How was that process for you? Yeah, uh, completing the FAFSA as a high school senior, I remember it being quite a quite a difficult challenge. Uh, my parents are very old school, like cannot work technology to this day. My mom actually had a brain aneurysm in the year 2000, so she is not at all tech savvy, does not really understand what any of that means. Kind of goes right over her head. And my dad, similar boat, just doesn't understand things. So I had to do it all by myself. Um, I was guessing for a lot of the things. My dad was very cautious of all the information he had to put onto the application, the taxes, the FSAID creation. I had to create their FSAIDs, make sure that they had passwords. It was very confusing for me. So I'm sure I filled it out wrong. I don't <laughs> quite remember everything I put on it. But um, yeah, I just kind of had to, to get through it. And I remember it not having, say, like an ISAC core person in my school, for example. Of course, I worked in my high school as an ISAC core member later, and learned that, oh, they implemented that person after I graduated, of course. So yeah, it was, it was a pretty hard process for sure. And what about college? How did it go from there? Did you just kind of learn once you did it the first time, just keep repeating the same thing over and over? Yeah, I kind of keep repeating the same thing. I do remember one mistake I made with um, like the IRA rollover question, and my dad and I reported some of those rollovers that he got when he changed jobs, and it ended up really messing up my EFC at the time. So I lost my Pell Grant and my MAP Grant for like a semester and a half. And all of a sudden I saw my tuition bill skyrocket by like seven, $8,000. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I had to go to the financial aid office and plead with them. And they were kind of unwilling at first, but then we figured out the problem, which I couldn't identify at the time and thankfully got it fixed. And then the next semester I was able to get my need-based aid back. So yeah, again, just, you know, kind of just taking the shots in the dark there, kind of guessing as I was going along. And just so our listeners know, when Tommy said EFC, that's the estimated family contribution, right, Tommy? Expected family Expected, contribution. Sorry. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and then that they use the EFC to determine how much financial aid you may be eligible for. So just wanted to clarify for our listeners. Thanks. And uh, we talked about it, too, or I talked about it, doing the same thing with my mom. Yeah. Just taking her information and doing it myself just because she didn't know what she was doing and she was busy with work. But yeah, from there, let's get into our conversation. So now that October and November have come and gone, a big question on everyone's mind is when is the free application for federal student aid, the FAFSA, going to be released? Because it's not released yet. And let me clarify, the FAFSA for the current seniors wanting to apply for the 2024 
2025 academic year. Correct. So the Department of Ed has until December 31st via the statute to release the application. They have released that they are going to do so, obviously, by that date, but we do not have a specific date yet. We haven't um, ever since they've gone through this process. So we are all anticipating quite a late December release date for the application. And the good news is for us here at ISAC, we're also going to be timing the alternative application on the same day to sort of avoid confusion. So it's kind of a wait and see process. So it's by December 31st. Right, exactly. So by the end of this year. (laughs) Yep, exactly. (laughs) Almost there. So I know Dada talked a little bit about this, but now that months have gone by a little bit, Will we see any changes with verification or any other changes that you want to share with the listeners? Sure. So in terms of verification, the department has announced that they are going to be going back to what's called random verification. So they're going to just randomly be selecting folks for verification like they used to do in the past. The question still remains as to is that going to increase verification or is it going to decrease verification? So we're going to have to see what happens over the next year about what they're going to do and how they're going to change verification moving forward. But I know for this gap transition year, they will be moving to random verification exactly what they're going to verify. We're not 100% sure yet. They have released some documents and some examples of what they would. But because of, say, the direct data exchange, you would think that financial information verification would decrease because that information is coming directly from the IRS. So that's a good change. But in terms of the other things, they are going to move to a random selection. Is there a typical list? Like what have they verified before, like in previous years? Just to get a little bit of clarity or any insight yeah. on that would be great. So in, in the past, like the financial sections, they may ask for like a copy of the tax returns or say a copy of the W-2s just to verify income, for example. Um, other things they might want to verify would be previously like household size. They might ask for like a bill, utility bill, something like that, proving who's all in the household, things of that nature. Um, verification for say dependency status, right? You might have students looking for a dependency override in order to become independent for purposes of financial aid. Sometimes they need signed statements from in-kind support or neighbors about the family situation. Maybe the student's fleeing some kind of abusive household and environment, things of that nature. Those types of things, I think, that we've seen for verification. Sounds like there's a lot of scenarios. There's a ton. I mean, yeah, there's homeless students as well. They have the whole thing. So it really, and again, it's all dependent on what the institution wants because they're judge, jury, and executioner, right? They Mm -hmm. have control over what they want to verify usually and what kind of documents they're going to have. And they have sole kind of decision-making too about if they're going to grant that verification or that dependency override, for example, or not. So really just kind of all depends on the institution. And when you say institution, you mean college. Schools, yeah. Right, so the (laughs) two-year, four years. So they're the ones who say, we need this document because the Department of Ed is asking us to verify this. Exactly. Okay, so they determine what document they're willing to accept. Yep, right. Okay, that's good to know. Mm -hmm. Got it. Mm -hmm. And then what about the appeal process? Is there any changes to that that you know of? So in the appeals process, there might be a couple of updates that we can talk about in terms of on the FAFSA now for the upcoming 24-25 school year. Students can now file as what's known as provisionally independent. Really, all that's going to do for a student who thinks they are independent is actually going to give them their estimated student aid index, SAI for short, and a Pell Grant amount. What this will do on the back end, I think, is it's going to flag for institutions, schools, right, to say, oh, we have a student who thinks they're independent. We need to verify those students and go through this appeals process to see 
are we going to grant you a dependency override? I think another update for appeals would be that, for example, the number enrolled of students in college, that question on the FAFSA, is no longer going to be used in the student aid index calculation. However, we know it's still being asked on the application. So that could be used for the appeals process and professional judgment for students and families to say, okay, you're not going to use it in the application, but you're still asking it on the application. So it's a professional judgment case. Hey, school, we have three of our siblings, my children, all in college at the same time. What can you do for me here? You know, so I think that would be a significant update. But is that going to cause a lot of people to request appeals since it's not in the calculations? Or are they going to say, well, it's not in the calculation, so we don't have to take it into consideration? I guess that's like right. up in the air. I- yeah, it is up in the air. Um, I, I, I'm not going to lie. I've been saying it in all of my events and talking with folks that, hey, I mean, if I was in your shoes as a student, this is what I would be using as professional judgment. I mean, you try to always get more aid as you can because... I mean, all they can do is say no, right? So the school can, like you said, come back to them and say, hey, it's not using the calculation. We're not going to consider it as a professional judgment case, right? It's not going to happen. But some schools might say, oh, okay, like we have some extra need-based aid, maybe some institutional aid. We see that this student's got, you know, four kids in their family at the same time in college. Maybe there's some wiggle room to get some extra aid. So it really is all going to depend. And like you said, maybe it really increases the amount of appeals cases, but or maybe it doesn't. It puts a lot of discretion on the schools, on the colleges, yeah. which gives them more power on who they can award funds to. That's interesting. Well, the good news is, too, another update now that I'm thinking about it is that, I mean, it used to be in the past, this was very rare, but institutions, schools, were able to just deny all professional judgment cases in general. They didn't even hear professional judgment cases. That's one of the changes with the appeals process as well, is that now all institutions have to have some kind of policy to at least hear professional judgment cases. Now, that does not mean they are still not judge, jury, and executioner, but they can no longer just outright deny students, right? Student comes to the financial aid office and says, hey, I got this situation, special circumstance, too many enrolled in college at the same time, for example. What can you do for me? Sometimes schools just didn't even hear them. They say, no, sorry. Now they at least have to hear the case out, and then they can make their decision. Oh, that's good. That's yeah. yeah, that's mm-hmm. really good. I know, too, you mentioned the SAI, and I know Jasmine mentioned the EFC, Mm -hmm. which is formerly known as, but what other new terminology can parents expect to hear or see from the upcoming FAFSA? So we have the student aid index is replacing the expected family contribution. That's a good one. The IRS data retrieval tool from the past has been retired, and now they're calling it the direct data exchange. Basically, it's the IRS and the Department of Ed talking more, right? They're going to have to provide consent on the application, and then all that federal tax information will be transferred over very seamlessly on the back end. Students and families won't even see it happen. Another good terminology change would be like household size is being renamed to family size. It's basically the same thing. The purpose of that is because they're trying to match what, what people would more see on a tax return. Other terminology things like for semantics that I might think about would be uh, the student aid report. Same kind of document, but they're going to rename it to the FAFSA Submission Summary. Now, Student Aid Report, the SAR, nice acronym, rolls off the tongue. I don't know what we're going to call the FAFSA Submission Summary quite yet, but that's the new name of it. Um, So we're looking out for that. And then some other elements in the cost of attendance are going to have some semantic term changes. So previously known as room and board, they're going to call it food and housing. Books and supplies is now going to be called books, course materials, and equipment. Some of these little things kind of mean the same thing still, but they're going to have some terminology changes. Again, if students are coming to us, for example, or anywhere they say room and board, 
I know what they're talking about. It's food and housing. Probably it'll take a couple of years for all of us to kind of get used to those changes. And this is the first like real big change that we've seen on the fast one in, in years, like ever. Right. Well, yeah. And a lot of the changes too haven't even been highlighted in statute. I mean, they saw this as an opportunity to kind of really revamp the form to say, okay, we have to make these changes because Congress is telling us to. But also we've had complaints for a decade and a half about all these other things wrong with the form. Let's see if we can actually just kind of kill two birds with one stone here and make this a hopefully simpler, easier application for students and families. So I know for us as professionals, it's going to take a couple of years and it's probably a lot more work on us and schools, financial aid administrators. But if you look at the prototype they have out now and you go through it as a student, in my opinion, it does seem easier, more streamlined, simpler language for families and students. So I'm hopefully encouraged. (laughs) Where can uh, one find the prototype if they want to check it out? Yeah, the prototype's on the FSA website here. And I can actually search up the exact link because I know we want to get nice and specific here. Yes, please. That way any counselors listening or any, you know, students who want to see what that looks like so they know what questions they might be asked, things like that. Or parents too, right? Yeah, they definitely need to know. So yeah, if you go for the prototype, if you go to the fsapartners.ed.gov site, and once you get to that page, you just search in FAFSA prototype for 2425 and it should pop up automatically there. Thank you. Tommy, I know we also know that there's a grant consent box that's coming. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so that's one of the biggest changes coming to the application is this consent piece. And it's huge. And it happens pretty early on in the application for both students and parents. So I know Dada talked about it being a role-based form. So theoretically, we have students kind of logging in first, right? They're the main contributors, right? And once they log into the application, pretty much right away, they're going to be asked to provide consent for this direct data exchange to take place. It's like a pretty long summary page explaining what this is, why they have to do it, and what happens if they don't, essentially. And basically, every contributor on the application must provide consent. Otherwise, the student's not going to get federal aid, and there's really no exceptions to that. So that would mean that if a student has a step-parent and a, they're obviously their parent both the step-parent and the parent will have to sign a consent box as well as the student. Right, yeah. The only way that not both parents have to provide consent, if you have sort of a typical situation where you have married filing jointly parents, and then you have the dependent student, and then you really only need the one parent to provide consent because the IRS has a married filing jointly tax return on file. They only need consent from one parent. But in other situations, married filing separately or unmarried parents but still living together both parents are going to need FSA IDs and both parents have to provide consent. I think for me, I'm, I'm just going back to like my experience in completing the FAFSA and it was really, really hard to get my mom yeah. in the door to come and help complete the FAFSA when it was my turn to go to college. And I'm thinking it's like so because imp- as a student, it might be easy to just do it by yourself. Right. Even even by getting help with a professional like your counselor or something. But that means you absolutely need your parent there. There's no way a student can complete it by themselves and they need their parent to consent on the form. Yeah, um, that's probably my biggest challenge, I'd say, with this new FAFSA is that you really need parents and students kind of completing this together. Theoretically, they can complete it by themselves. 
you know, especially with us in our workshops, I know we've all worked with students here in the past, you know, mm-hmm. when we held a workshop, students are coming by themselves Sometimes, or, yeah. or one parent is coming by themselves and they have all of the information or they're going to create all of the FSA IDs and try and do it all there. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's now going to be a challenge because now they need more FSA IDs. So they're going to have to have more information down. They're going to have to be providing consent for other individuals. So I think that's going to be the biggest challenge, especially with the invitation piece. It's it, it could be kind of a nightmare if you're trying to fill it out by yourself. FSA has really tried to enforce this being role based, student kind of taking control and sort of a teamwork, you know, kind of tag teaming the application together. Yeah, it sounds like it's going to be like if I was a student, I wouldn't want to go through that by myself. Nope, not at all. It sounds like a headache. I would not I would just it. like, mom, you do your part <laughs> or dad, right? You do your part and I do my part and we're just do what we're supposed to do because exactly. it sounds like a headache. It really does. Yeah. yeah. And I know that and that's that's why I'm, I'm a little bit nervous about that, because I know for at least the folks that we serve, people are doing this by themselves and usually they're completing it the day of. I mean, that's, I think, another challenge I can now that I'm thinking about it. With the new FSA IDs and creating them, right? It's really not recommended to create FSA IDs the exact same day you complete the application because a couple of things are going to happen. Number one, they will not see an estimated student aid index, which means they're not going to see an estimated Pell Grant. And I think most importantly is that they're not going to be able to take advantage of that direct data exchange, right? Even when they provide consent, they're going to have to input their tax information manually. The reason being is that the FSA ID has not been processed successfully, hasn't been verified. Um, so that's the biggest challenge. So we are really recommending folks create their FSA IDs before filling out the application, and then life should be good. And how long does it take for an FSA ID to get processed? Is it good enough, quote unquote, to do it the night before? Like how much in advance do you need to do it? It takes one to three days, FSA says. So, so just say three days because yeah, just you want to be days. safe. I mean, you, theoretically, you could create it the day before and it could be processed and you could be good to go, but that's not a guarantee. So one to three days, if you could get that three days prior, that'd be awesome. Um, yeah. But yeah. So if you're hearing this now and you haven't created your FSA ID, please do so immediately. Right before the password comes out will not be good enough. So it's not a, even more of a headache. So that's for the student creating FSA ID, the parent who's going to be completing it, right, or providing their financial information. They need an FSA ID. And am I missing anyone? No, I mean, you pretty much got it. But even just to add another wrinkle to this, not to get too much into the weeds, but you know, folks without a social security number now need an FSA ID mm-hmm. and they have not released that process for those individuals yet. They just released a couple of weeks ago, the draft screens of what that's going to look like for folks without social security numbers. So if you are an individual who does not have a social security number, you can't even create your FSA ID yet. You have to wait until the FAFSA gets released. And so they're not releasing that process until the end of this year. Right. Yep. Because I know previously, like I had, I went through this and previously it was, you put all zeros, you print out the sheet, you sign it and you mail it in, which did take a long time for it to reflect on your, your FAFSA. But now starting this upcoming FAFSA cycle, they are able to complete an FSA ID, but that process isn't available until the end of this year. Yeah. So it's kind of a, again, positive and negatives with these new changes, right? Um, I'm excited for the elimination of the signature pages. Everyone should be able to sign electronically. It should be much faster. It should take three to five days. 
No more printing out pages and signing in colors of inks that aren't acceptable. Or from did it FSA. get through the mail? Did or, it get yeah, sent? Did they receive right. it? Lost. <laughs> it takes know, three so to scary. five weeks. And then if they denied it, you don't uh, know about it. It doesn't yeah. show up on, on the online portion of the FAFSA. It and, was such a risky. I'm like, oh my gosh, that gives me so much anxiety. It was ridiculous, honestly. Yeah. Like, so I'm, I'm excited for that. However, we're just seeing the draft screens of what these identity verifications are going to be from TransUnion. Very important that folks understand, too, is that this is not a credit check. This is just the folks who have that information to hopefully verify your identity just for the sole purpose of you creating this FSA ID. So the couple of screenshots they've released of what folks might be asked would be something like, which of the filing is a street name you've lived on previously? What is a previous phone number that you have or have had in the past? Which of the filing is a current or previous employer? Some of these questions, right, that they would have that information about, they could then verify your identity. So theoretically, if someone does answer those questions and they're able to verify the identity, folks without social security numbers are good to go. The questions we have is what happens if they can't answer those questions or they're not correct? What's the process look like then? Yeah. And just for clarity, we're talking about the parents that don't have right. social, social security correct. numbers. Correct. Students that don't have social security numbers should still complete the RISE application. Yes, absolutely. The alternative application. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that makes me nervous. But we'll yeah. see how it goes. I mean, it's one of those things that you just have to go through and wish for the best. And yeah, I mean, it is better than the paper. I will say that. Yeah, it is. It's parents, just it's but... about who those who are trying to fly under the radar as they would you might naturally think. It's like if they don't have a, a driver's license to verify themselves or, you know, some kind of state ID or a utility bill or something like that. Like, what are they going to ask for? How are they going to go through that so they can actually verify their identity and make sure that their FSA ID is good to go? So it's going to be kind of on a case-by-case basis we're hearing, but exactly the specifics of how FSA is going to handle that, we're still sort of waiting on clearer guidance for that. And since we mentioned the alternative app, and I'm not sure if all of our listeners, I don't want to assume that all of our listeners know what that is. Can you just briefly share what the alternative app, who it's for? I know Data shared a little bit Um, But I just wanted to repeat in case they didn't listen to the episode. Yeah. So the alternative application for Illinois financial aid is really for our eligible undocumented students. Essentially, it's a MAP grant application only. So in other states across the country, right, those folks can fill out a FAFSA and perhaps get some state aid because those other states would allow that. Here in the state of Illinois, we would not do that. If you have undocumented students you're working with, right, we turn them away from FAFSA because they are non-eligible non-citizens. And we would turn them to the alternative application. Assuming they meet the five eligibility criteria listed there, then they would be able to get a MAP grant. The MAP grant being need-based aid yeah, in the, the state of Illinois. Yeah, the state of Illinois' need-based grant. It's called the Monetary Award Program. Thank you. Mm-hmm. MAP for short. Yeah. And then before we go, are there any resources for our listeners that you want to share or any tips or tricks Anything to help our listeners complete their FAFSA? Well, I will say I can't harp on enough about the creation of the FSA ID process. Um, for the large majority of students who are out there, right, you should be able to create FSA IDs today, get those verified, they'll process successfully in one to three days, and then when the application opens up at the end of the year sometime, you will be good to go. I think other resources and tips, right, if you do need help, find your local ISAC Corps member. I mean, you know, you might have schools that aren't using the ISAC Corps, that's still okay. We can still turn you to an individual who can still help you. Um, you can find it on our studentportal.isec.org site. And if you go to the toolbox section of that site, you're able to search for an ISAC core member near you. 
via your zip code. There you can directly call them or text them or send them an email and saying, hey, I really need some help with this application. It's way too confusing. There's a lot of information here I don't understand. Can you help me? And they absolutely can. So hopefully they're in your school. You can find them through them. But if they're not, then you can go ahead and reach out to them directly via that site. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yes, thank you, Tommy. It's always a pleasure getting information about the things that can help a lot of parents and students come along. So we thank you for joining us and thank you for sharing all this information. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Bye, everyone. Bye. We would like to thank our guest, Thomas Semanic, for joining us today. We would also like to thank ISAC for supporting us, the First Generation Scholars Network for encouraging us to put this podcast together. Thanks to our producers, Joey Lieberman and Matt Montez. Last but not least, we would like to thank our listeners for tuning in. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not directly reflect the opinions of the Illinois Student Assistance Commission. We hope you enjoyed the episode and have a good day, everyone. Thank you.